In response to the sermon, we will be singing from hymn 71. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, every day of our life, brothers and sisters, we make choices. In the morning, you choose what to wear. You buy a new suit and choose which one you like best. Children already choose between the one activity or the other, between this friend or that one. It's not always easy to make a choice, especially when the outcome is important. Do I keep this relationship and marry him or her, or should I break it off? Do I keep this job or seek another? Sometimes the choice is so difficult that you lie awake from it, or you don't dare to choose which is a choice nonetheless. We are living in a multicultural and multi-religious society, beloved. Now, is that a matter of choice too? Like choosing to be a Christian, a Muslim or so? We are living in a tolerant society, right? Should we therefore leave the choice to people, allow for Jews, for Jesus, or Mohammed? Is that the same as the choice the Israelites have to make between Baal and the Lord? Are they silent because the choice is so hard or because the consequences are so far-reaching? This story in our scripture passage, beloved, is it a matter of choice, of competition? Did Yahweh win? Did Yahweh have to prove himself? Can't you just leave two or more religions beside each other and leave it up to the people to decide which one is true and which one isn't true? The true God will win in the end anyway, right? For Ahab, it was no problem to serve both Baal and Yahweh. While for Jezebel, it was. Baal only is a God. For the people of Israel, it wasn't a problem either. They served both. Just like it is no problem today, everyone serves his own gods. Is that what this passage is about? No, it is not. This is not about what Baal couldn't do or didn't do. It's about what Baal is not. He is not God. He is not anything. It's about a religion that determines people's lives outside of God. It's about Israel seeking milk and honey, prosperity and fertility without the Lord. What's the true religion? That's the question. How does the true God want to be served? That's the issue. The Lord seeks worship in spirit and truth. He's not just some higher power. 
He is the Lord who revealed himself in his word about the way he wants to be served. We are living in a time that's similar to Elijah's days, beloved. It's a time in which there isn't just one religion, but many. Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism. We are seeing churches, mosques, temples, hats and burqas and nikahs and lots of literature about spirituality. Indeed, we are living in a multi-faith society. Are they all true somewhat? No. The Lord, he is God. No, Christ, he is king. Why? Because he has revealed himself in his word. His word is truth. The Bible isn't a book with myths and legends. It's a history book. A book recorded upon eyewitness accounts. Thousands of them. That's what you can be sure about regarding the story in 1 Kings 18, in which the miracle shown by the one true God was witnessed by thousands of people. That's how it is with all God's miracles. In Egypt, at the Red Sea, in the wilderness, as well as as with all the miracles done by the Lord Jesus. Hundreds of people saw Lazarus come out of the grave. Hundreds saw Jesus die on the cross. And hundreds saw him after his resurrection. It's true. God's word is true. The Lord, he is God. The worship in spirit and truth according to God's word, that's the only true religion. That's what we see in our scripture passage today. So I summarize our text as follows. At Mount Carmel, the Lord manifests himself to Israel as the living God. We see, first of all, the exposition of Baal as no God. And secondly, the exposition of Yahweh as true God. So at Mount Carmel, the Lord manifests himself to Israel as the living God. We see first the exposition of Baal as no God. The events on Mount Carmel, brothers and sisters, are not really between the Lord and Baal, but between the Lord and Israel. It's a momentous occasion, this event in which the prophet Elijah has gathered with the people of Israel and all those Baal prophets. It's been three years since Elijah had spoken last to them. Chapter 17, verse 1. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. He had said. At that time the Lord stopped the rain so that Israel would learn the emptiness and sure destruction of Baal worship. And now the Lord was going to bring back the blessing. That's what we read at the beginning of chapter 18. The Lord had sent Elijah to Ahab to inform him of this. 
so that it would be clear to Ahab that the Lord God was the giver of rain, not Baal. The Lord, brothers and sisters, initiated a new return to milk and honey so that the people could live. That's why Elijah commanded Obadiah to call Ahab, and Ahab had to come to Elijah to hear this message. And Elijah summoned all Israel to Mount Carmel together with all the Baal prophets. It would happen in a certain way through showing the altar of Baal for what it is and through the return of his people which the Lord himself would bring about. It is the Lord who is the living God and brings renewal, brings return to kingdom life through renewing his people, turning their hearts to him, the Lord, the only true God. When Elijah had gathered all Israel and the Baal prophets at Mount Carmel, beloved, he places them before a choice. Choose today whom you want to serve, the Lord or Baal. Stop wavering between two opinions. Quit limping on two thoughts. Make an end to a life in which you want to take advantage from two sources of living. Choose whom you want to believe, follow, and serve. You can't keep it vague any longer, stay at a distance, or continue as uncommitted as you have been these past three years. Make up your mind and choose. You can't serve the Lord and Baal. God doesn't want to be compared to Baal, be placed in the same category as Baal. At first, Israel had nothing to say. Death silence follows for lifeless Israel. Then what happens? Does the Lord send a destructive fire from heaven to strike his people Israel? No. The Lord comes to his people via Elijah to lead them further on the way of life. He has to bring them from this silence to the confession that the Lord, he is God, the living God and the God of life. It is through covenant renewal that he does so. Through Elijah, who here foreshadows Christ, who would be sacrificed on the altar of God's wrath in their place. That's what Elijah shows us here when he comes out with his plan to have two bulls sacrificed. First one by the Baal prophets and then one by Elijah. The God who would send fire from heaven, he will be the true God for his people. So that's what happened. That's how it happened. Then we see, brothers and sisters, how the Baal prophets start their prayers. In the morning, they may go first. Everything is designed for their advantage. 
They pray and pray and repeat their prayers louder and louder. Oh, Baal, answer us. There was no response. No one answered. With words and gestures, with dancing and ceremonial bleeding, they tried everything. Lots of religion, with lots of cutting of flesh and blood, it shows how seriously they take their religion and how they devote themselves to the maximum for their gods. They become ecstatic because of the heat of the day, the tiredness in their dedication, the loss of blood in their ceremony, and the frenzy due to the reaction of Baal, or rather, his non-reaction, no matter how long they try and how hard and what they do. The morning passes, and noontime has come. Hour after hour they call and cry, they shout and shiver, but there is no fire. That's when Elijah starts adding his commentary to the procedures giving religious advice to these fellow prophets. He mocks these idolatrous priests who are 450 altogether, yet who are unable to awaken Baal or activate their gods. Now, is that a good thing, mocking religious practices? How do we have to view this? Well, it's the Lord scoffing at them as in Psalm 2. The heavenly laughter, mocking the unbelief of these people and the foolishness of heathendom. Baal must be gone for a while, traveling or deep in thought or busy or sleeping. You know, in the imagination of the people, an idol is like a man, be it greater and more glorious. Did it have an effect on these prophets? Not at all. Do they turn away from Baal? Not that either. On the contrary, they intensify their attempts and become more and more fanatic in their efforts until they have to come to the moment they have to admit defeat, until they are exhausted and succumb to the heat to their failure to get an answer from Baal. There was no voice. No one answered and no one paid attention. Just silence and emptiness and lots of pain. That's what you get at the altar of Baal. It takes your blood and it gives you nothing. And isn't that how it still is today, beloved? in the malls, in the halls of power, in the workplace and in the bedroom, Baal rules, for Baal is Lord, or so his name says. Indeed, Baal means Lord or husband or possessor. There were so many of them in those days already, a Baal for the rain and the storm, a Baal for the war and the sea, a Baal Peor and Abel, Herman, they were powers in nature, in the sea and on the land, in the mountains and in the graves. 
They were powers ruling the people's lives. Powers filling the peoples with fear and dread. They made them feel vulnerable, dependent. Hence, they did what they could to appease them, to manipulate them, and to force them to do what they want them to do. Does that seem like a primitive religion, beloved? Well, yes, that's how it appears there, around the altar at Mount Carmel. But that's still the case with people who are controlled by powers today, such as fads, fashions, birth control, sex, pornography, alcohol, money, gambling, materialism, and other bales of our time. That's what we see in our scripture passage. They are gods that control and enslave, but they don't take care. They don't provide what you need. That's Baal, a god who wants to see your blood, a god to whom people have to sacrifice their children, a false god who wants to destroy you. Is Baal a god? No, he isn't. No, not at all. Baal can do nothing, as the story makes abundantly clear. Whatever you sacrifice on the altar of Baal takes your everything and leaves you nothing but pain. Thank God that he exposes this through his living words, through his prophet, through his son. And so we come to the second place, the exposition of Yahweh as true God. When the Baal prophets or priests are lying on the ground, bleeding and exhausted, brothers and sisters, then Elijah comes into action. If Baal doesn't listen now, he will never listen. Elijah goes to work on his altar, on his sacrifice. He calls the people to this altar, and in their presence he restores the altar of God. He's he's playing with fire, though, pun intended. He takes 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob. That's a charge against King Ahab of the ten tribes. For it just isn't right that Israel consists of two parts. That was the punishment from the Lord, all right, but only a political one and not a religious separation. Hence, in verse 31 and verse 36, Elijah mentions Israel as the Lord's people, his covenant people. Indeed, Elijah's altar is a covenant meeting place. It's a sign of the atonement that's needed in Israel's covenant relationship. The altar that Elijah erects, beloved, and the sacrifice that he brings is not meant to appease Yahweh the way this happened with Baal, but it is a response of God's people to the Lord's love and grace. That's the difference between the worship in spirit and truth to the Lord and idolatry. 
The difference today still between the Christian faith and all other religions. Namely, the Lord first came to his people with his love and grace to call them, to give his promises to them. And then his people are called to respond to his love and grace in sacrifice and prayer, in love and obedience, in life of service. In every other religion, man has to do something first before the God will do something back. Not so with the Lord. Not so with Elijah's altar and sacrifice. God himself will provide a lamb for atonement, a sacrifice of love in his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes, that's the sacrifice that was foreshadowed in every Old Testament sacrifice for sin, for atonement, and for reconciliation. Elijah's altar, therefore, is a reference to the Lord's establishing his covenant with Israel at Mount Horeb. In Exodus 12, Moses also built an altar with 12 stones, before he climbs the mountain to see the Lord and makes a sacrifice to the Lord in confidence and trust that the Lord will bless and keep them. Now Elijah calls the Lord's people back to that, back to their covenant God. The connection between Mount Carmel and Mount Horeb, brothers and sisters, becomes even clearer when afterwards the Lord comes with fire, to ignite the sacrifice. At Mount Horeb as well, the Lord appeared in fire and smoke. Also the fact that Elijah builds the altar at the time of the evening sacrifice is significant. That's not just a disadvantageous consequence of the Baal prophet's time of dancing and crying and cutting, leaving little time for Elijah to do his part. No, It's the time at which God's people bring the evening sacrifice in Jerusalem so as to remind God's people of the place of true worship and to emphasize the unity between the sacrifice in the temple and this sacrifice at Mount Carmel. Israel has to return to this unity with the true worship. And leave their ambiguity in service and their double-mindedness in heart. In order that the Lord be the only one. The only true God in their life. Elijah also ensures, beloved, that it will be absolutely clear and convincing that it is the Lord who ignited this sacrifice. There was nothing magic involved in this moment. And Elijah did not use trick or stunt to pull it off. He had some people fill four water jars with water. Probably from some well nearby. And they poured it over the altar, the sacrifice, doing so even three times. So again, twelve jars so that the trench around the altar was filled with water. Then when the time of the evening sacrifice has come, 
Elijah steps forward and prays to God. Yes, indeed. There's only one prophet who prays. And just a short prayer at that. Then see. The Lord answers emphatically. At the altar of the covenant, he causes fire to fall from heaven. The Lord, who is God, did so. The Lord, who had done so when the tabernacle was dedicated to his service, Leviticus 9, and who had manifested himself that way when Solomon's temple was inaugurated, 2 Chronicles 7. Here, too, revealed his presence by sending fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. An all-consuming fire, signifying consuming judgment fire. Holy fire, which took the ox and the altar and everything. Israel, represented in that twelve-stoned altar, was utterly consumed. But watching, Israel itself was entirely spared. Israel came out on the other side of that all-consuming judgment fire alive. Confessing God's name and glory. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. What Elijah is doing here, beloved, is the restoration of the service to the Lord. And the covenant renewal as the Lord initiated it at Horeb, at Shiloh. And at Jerusalem, Elijah knows the Lord as the only true God, the living God, and the God of life. Yes, Elijah prayed to him at this time so that he would manifest himself in his grace and power, in his holiness and justice, so that his people would fall to their faces before him to confess and glorify him. That's how they will also see his faithfulness and steadfast love restored in the blessings of the covenant, the rain, and the restoration of life from the dead. Yes, and it was this event that we see repeated once again at another mountain, on Mount Zion, at the hill of Golgotha. There too, Hundreds of people were standing around, around another kind of altar, around the cross. At that cross, the Son of God was hanging, Jesus, the Messiah. People had mocked him and spit at him and struck him. People who had decided what God they would serve and how. That's when fire struck from heaven again. The fire of God's wrath over all the sins and iniquities of his people. And then too, the fire did not strike the people standing around the cross, but the sacrifice, the Lamb of God at the cross. 
God's judgment fell on him. And so God brought a people to himself on the other side of that altar, the cross. A people spared the just punishment of God. Unless, beloved, unless you do not find your life and salvation in that sacrifice. Unless you do not find your joy and gratitude in the fire of God's love and grace. Then you will have to share in the lot of the Baal prophets. The ones whom Elijah had seized and brought to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. You think that is an anticlimax? A letdown? Following this moving story of God's grace and salvation for his rebellious people Israel? Is this again something typically Old Testamentical? Could this be in the same spirit as Jesus' sacrifice and Jesus' love? Well, what we see there is nothing different from what happened in the flood or in the Red Sea when the Lord saved as through water, yet destroying those who withstood him in his love and grace. It's the song of victory that Moses sang and Miriam in Exodus 15 and David in Psalm 2 about the Lord's victory over his enemies. In our passage, it's the exercise of judgment according to God's covenant word in Deuteronomy 13. Namely, that those who seduced God's people and lured them away from the Lord by false prophecy would be, would were to be killed. Old Testamentical? No. You know, no prophet ever threatened as much as the Lord Jesus did. Our chief prophet. He spoke of fire and hellish punishment for his and our enemies. Yes, in the book of Revelation also, we read about God's wrath that will consume the unbelievers as we confess from week to week in our apostolic confession. He comes to judge the living and the dead. Hence, we are urged, beloved, by the Lord to take our covenant position seriously and to accept his word as reliable, true, yes, gospel truth, We have to choose. Choose the one for whom we want to live. Choose for the one we wish to follow and serve in this life, in this world. Do you wish to live for your work, for your income, your luxuries, your expensive toys, your sports, holidays, money and the like? That is, do you wish to work for the Baals of our time? For the mammon of our days, nice and easy, safe and secure, because that's what you see. That's what you enjoy here and now. Choose today whom you will serve, Baal or the Lord. He gave one 
to mediate for us, one greater than Elijah, who built a lasting altar, made a supreme intercession, offered the definitive sacrifice, gave a better covenant meeting place, gave the ultimate in covenant renewal that we may confess and worship him, the holy, just, and merciful God. This Lord, he is God. Amen.